Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. This is Reality Check Radio on a Wednesday afternoon, and my pleasure now to welcome a woman whom I used to talk to regularly on a radio show, but I guess you could say we both had slightly higher profile roles then. Judith Collins, one-time leader of the National Party, but still the MP for Papakura, and the party's spokesperson on research, science, AI and technology, land information and digitising government and foreign direct investment. Whew, it's a full book she has. Uh, we'll talk about some of those policy areas shortly. Uh, but firstly, Judith, uh, you've been a very um, low-profile MP in recent times compared to what it was before, uh, quite the contrast to your previous persona. Uh, has that been a deliberate strategy on your part? Well, yes, Peter, it has. Um, I have deliberately been very active in the tech and science areas and Anyone who watches my or follows my social media on um, Facebook, Twitter, or even more importantly, LinkedIn, will see that I am everywhere over those areas. And that's what I've been focusing on, that and being uh, representing my electorate at Papakura. So I have deliberately not uh, engaged on all sorts of areas that people might wish me to, just to basically give the leadership clear ear and to get on with my job. Although I see you did have a wee uh, go on Twitter a few <laughs> days ago about the Minister of Police, about how it's not difficult being the Minister of Police. Uh, what was your line? The not. secret is to know which side you're on. Very good. That's the one. That's the one. I'm very happy to help every now and again. But look, I still retain a sense of humour, but also reality. Um, and when I look at the absolute mess that the ministers of police under Labour have got the police with the uh, cuddling up to criminals, having gang members coming into the beehive for meetings with Willie Jackson. This is just the, the absolute destruction of law and order that most people would expect. Mm, I suspect that uh, if there was a time and place in the future, you might quite like to be Minister of Police again, or is that drawing too long a bow? I think that's, that's too long ago. Look, I've done that twice. Um, you might recall I had three years of it, and then when I was brought back into Cabinet, I was asked to, to come in and um, had to basically straighten certain things up. Um, but I also found that uh, the police, it's a great portfolio, but it's one where I'm really, I've done everything that I could possibly do in it that I can think of. There'd be no surprises. And that's why I find so fascinating with science and the tech areas is that it's all about learning new things and solutions. And poor old police, they just need a police minister who backs them and doesn't go around cuddling up to the gangs. Judith, why did you stay on as an MP after 2020? Because every other National Party leader leaves or has left or is about to leave um, after losing the top job. How come you <laughs> wanted to stay on? <laughs> well, it's not like I had my hand up. Um, high for that top job in the first place. I mean, I had to take over after Todd Muller's coup and then he um, basically couldn't continue after about, I think it was 52 days or maybe it was 53 days and someone had to pick up the reins and I got asked to do it. So it's not like it was a job I wanted, but I was very determined to make sure that I was there long enough to make sure that we got someone who could take us forward um, and that's where... You know, I'm such a huge supporter of Christopher Luxon and Nicola Willis because I think that they are going to be able to do that. Do you still have political ambition left if you're back in government again? 
Oh, I'm very happy to play my part um, supporting the team and actually not only representing Papakura but continuing on with the work because every day I find I'm excited to get up and get into my office and, and either you know at home or in Wellington or in Papakura and just work to see people because I think if you're excited about your work, it doesn't feel like it's a long time. And, and some of my colleagues have said to me, Peter, oh, you've been there a long time. How do you still keep so engaged? And I say to them, well, it's because I, after every few years, I particularly ask to shift portfolios if I'm not learning something new, which is why I'd never want to go back in charge of police because even though I love the police dearly um, and I enjoyed it, there's nothing new to learn. All right. Well, let's talk about some of your portfolios now. Science and research first. The big announcement from the National Party in recent times in, in this area has been on genetic engineering, GE. How much has uh, the current policy held New Zealand back, do you think, in the last 20 years, two decades since the Helen Clark yeah. days? It is 20 years, and you will well remember that interview with John Campbell um, and that gotcha job on Helen Clark during the 2002 election, uh, it was around that time, and uh, about some corn from the United States that might have been genetically modified. Uh, it, re- it created an enormous storm, but at the same time, uh, there was very little sense that came out of it, other than New Zealand got held back but for 20 years. And, and what we've done in the meantime, what's happened in the meantime, is that the technology and the science has moved on so significantly that it's no longer about crossing tomatoes with oranges. It's actually more of tweaking a particular gene uh, to make it either drought-resistant or able to uh, not be attacked by um, insects or pesticides, all those sorts of things. And what we're seeing now is work going on uh, curing cancer, um, actually having better results around methane emissions for you know the climate change commitments that we've been signed up to over the years. Um, these are all science innovations that New Zealand scientists can do in the lab, but that's it. That's right, because they had to, well, in the case of the methane or the ryegrass that they wanted to test to see whether it reduced animals' methane, they had to actually grow that in North America, didn't they? They weren't allowed to put it that's outside right. in New Zealand. That's right. And that, and that was work going on in one of our Crown Research Institutes and uh, that had to go offshore. They also then, after Australia changed their laws um, to much more, I mean, basically I've looked at what the Australians have done to say, well, you know, the Australians had very similar regulations than as us um, and they've changed these a couple of years ago. And basically, they can now, you know, they can now trial it in the U- in Australia as well. But Australia and the US are major competitors of ours, and when it comes to uh, agriculture, and so here we are, um, not using the advantages that other countries will be able to use. And I also think too is that, um, you know, the whole uh, hysteria, frankly, that that developed around genetic. Um, editing or gene editing as it is now actually became almost a religion and to the extent that people were happy to say well you know I'd rather have pesticides than to have my um, my greens genetically modified or frankly I'd rather not have the pesticides if I didn't have to um, but you know that's it's the other thing is it's not compulsory 
um, nothing that we would do would be compulsory. This is all about if people want to make use of the advances being made. Um, frankly, I'd be taking them, but not everyone needs to. Indeed, but it seems as if we could, and bearing in mind that New Zealand's main industry is producing food, it seems that we can produce more food on the same amount of land through the use of this kind of science. And surely that cannot be a bad thing because it's just more efficient, isn't it? Well, it is. And the thing is, is that we have the um, the current government's plans and the Greens, which is to kill a whole lot of cows. Uh, well, naturally, all that's going to do is, apart from kill the cows, it's going to kill the, the, the sector that, by the way, brings in most of our export um, dollars around about um, the agricultural sector brings out around about 63% of our export dollars. Uh, where do they think these people think that money comes from? Does it come from the pay for health and education and the police force? Where, where does it come from? It comes from our exporters. Um, and it's really important to understand that, you know, even the EU, which has over the last 20 years been very jumpy about uh, gene editing, that they have moved, they're moving very quickly on this too. In the UK, it's almost, or most regulations seem to have been almost gone. Um, and I always find it sort of interesting with people who are right into things like soy milk and soy. Uh, most of ours comes from the US where the chances that it has been genetically modified in some way are extremely high. So um, I just think people do need to be a little bit more realistic about it. As a former tax lawyer, are you happy with our current tax regime for research and development? Well, I think that there are some changes that could be made, but I'd rather that we understand that when we get into government, which I'm absolutely convinced that we have to, um, because I think half the country will probably leave if we don't in October, is that um, we need to have a look at the books very carefully because you might have noticed the other week, I think it was about a week ago, it suddenly popped up that we had another $5 billion worth of debt uh, that hadn't been told to us before. So I think we're very wary about what we're going to inherit. And you can see a few of the little minefields that this government is leaving for us, uh, some of the things, the announcements that they like making around things like pay equity and various other things, all of those sound great. And there is a, a massive cost which people need to be aware about. And they just love doing this. They did it to us in 2008. Um, they, they're doing it this time. So I think we need to be very wary about that. Well, maybe you'll remember even back in 1990, that was maybe the worst example of that, wasn't it? Yeah. When Jim Bolger yeah. took yeah. over the huge hole that was uh, left uh, yeah. by the previous government. Yeah, and the law was changed to require these things to be um, announced. But the the problem is, is when they're announced as agreements or they're announced as um, policy and then there's no money actually set aside for it, that creates enormous pressure on an incoming government. So I'm I'm long enough in the tooth and experienced enough to know just be really careful about making promises on things that you um you, you don't when you don't know what the books are going to be like. As the spokesperson on science, and I know this is outside your portfolio, but the, the matter of science education, the science curriculum in schools came up the other day and it was greeted yes. with, with horror by a lot of science teachers. What was your reaction yes. to it when you read it? 
Well, absolute disgust. Um, and I spoke to our education spokesperson about it, Erica Stanford, and she, she and I are entirely on the same page. This is absolute nonsense. And so under us, there will be changes, and those changes will be that science will actually mean science, that there will be chemistry, biology, maths and physics, that these are absolutely crucial for any young person who is wanting to enter any sort of health uh, qualification or profession, plus obviously science professions, but in so many ways. Um, imagine trying to have engineers who don't understand physics. I mean, that's the sort of nonsense that we've got. And this dumbing down of the education system into some sort of feelings type basis is just disgraceful and it is a travesty. Another thing that really annoys me, Peter, is it's not the, the kids from families who can actually afford to get tutors and to help them. It's the kids in parts of my electorate that are the decile ones and the decile twos, some of the poorest kids in the country. They're the ones who just miss out altogether on any opportunity to um, give themselves a career where they're going to get well paid and they can have options in life. It's a totally pathetic um, situation that we're are going to have to fix, and we will fix it. Well, that brings us to the issue of the ideology, which seems to pervade much of the public service. You've been in government before. You've had to deal with government departments. How easy is it when you've got an underlying ideology running through some of those government departments and ministries? How strong do you have to be as a minister to pull them into line or say, shape up or ship out? You have to be very strong, um, but my experience tells me, and I got on very well with my um, the public servants that I dealt with, the you know obviously the, the heads of the departments, but also the senior staff. I actually found all the way down when I'd go out to the offices and and you know visit the ACC office in Hastings, for instance, um, or the police at various places. That the frontline troops are in all these agencies are far closer to reality than anything. Uh, sitting in a policy department inside one of the big government agencies. But I found that if you set very clear expectations of what the outcomes are going to be, then ask them to get off and show you the plan, how they're going to achieve those outcomes and come back and work through it with you as to what is actually going to be acceptable when it comes to funding uh, or timeframes and then let them actually get on with it, you can get some really good results. But what you can't do is just try and second-guess everything they're trying to do. I, my experience of public service is um, different from some people's. My experience was if they're given uh, the opportunity to do the best work, they will do it. Um, like anyone else, they tend to be very um, focused on trying to do get the right outcome. The problem we've got at the moment is that they've got a bunch of wallies who are in charge of them, which just happen to be the ministers. I mean, you can see this revolving door of, of um, non-entities who come in, uh, suddenly promoted into cabinet by Chris Hipkins and will just as suddenly disappear. But I see, particularly in ministries like education, the environment, I see ideologies from the public servants that would push back against many of the, or much of the thinking from a national-led government, don't I? Well, you see it, but you don't have to accept it. And ultimately, the um, position 
of the minister needs to be very firm. You know, I've seen over the years some various governments, ministers who have become completely taken in by departments um, and their own agendas. Well, they're just very weak ministers and they normally get sorted out in the next reshuffle. But it is very important. So the Ministry of Education, as you know, has grown from memory around about 600 people. Um, I don't think we're seeing good outcomes on that. So, like everyone else, they're going to have to look at what their minister expects from them, and then they're going to have to have a plan, then they're going to have to execute it, and I'm sure that their minister will hold them to account on it. That's just what you have to do. It's not actually that hard. You just have to be firm and understand that your job is to be respected, not necessarily loved by everyone in the top brass. Can we talk now about foreign direct investment, which is an area that uh, you're also responsible for among your portfolios? There was a visit to oh. Ireland in recent weeks uh, led by the New Zealand Initiative. Uh, one of the guys on that trip was Craig Stobo, who will be known to you, of course, a very intelligent man who's been involved in a lot of uh, setting of New Zealand's tax policy in, in recent times. Oh. Uh, he came back and has spoken about the trip there. The, the thing that staggered me was the amount of foreign investment that is put into a country like Ireland with a similar population. Okay, two reasons. One, they're close to Europe, but but secondly, it's their tax regime, isn't it? And surely we have to look at that in terms of attracting foreign investment into this country, don't we? Yes. Well, there are lots of things we can do around foreign direct investment. So number one, what we shouldn't do is treat it like it's you know a cancer-causing disease, which is what the Labour Greens... New Zealand First Alliance in 2017 essentially did. So you'll remember the Chinese-sounding names, which was run by the Labour Party in their, um, at that stage, I think it was the Chief of Staff. They actually ran this sort of vile, sort of racist um, attack on foreign money. But they also sent a message to anyone else other than Chinese people, um, New Zealanders, doesn't want New Zealand doesn't want your money or your investment or your capital. And so it is really important though that we understand that there were some concerns around housing, but housing has got worse, not better. Um, you know, some of the things that they were put in were very, very anti not only immigration, but anti any money coming into the country. So I've been to Ireland and I've looked at what they're doing too. And what's amazing, and you're quite right, that they have actually said, uh, we want your money and we want your capital, and by the way, we want your expertise and we want your contacts. And I don't believe for a moment that Ireland is that particular hotspot just because it's you know part of Europe or close to Europe. I mean, there are loads of countries part of Europe, and no one's charging into Greece, for instance, or Italy or other parts of Europe. It's much more to do with their business settings and their tax settings and the rhetoric that they seem to have across parties, that actually they want Ireland to thrive. They no longer want to be an exporter of people. They want to be an exporter of tech. And so um, they are a great country for us to learn from. So what can we learn? Is it worth us 
going to what Ireland are going to do. I know they've got to put their tax rate up from twelve and a half to fifteen percent to to yes. fall into line with the EU, but that's that that's a sort of a European rule. Right. But but our corporate tax rate is twenty eight percent. I mean, do we have to put uh, the knife to our corporate tax rate to try and get some foreign direct investment here, or, or more of it? Well, I, I think there's other things we can do. I mean, obviously, the tax rate in Ireland is obviously a significant advantage for them. But um, I also am very aware that we don't know what the books are going to be like. So we, I just need to be very aware of that. But there are other things we can do. And um, we'll be making you know, an announcement on that in the next few weeks around our foreign direct investment policy. But being able to say to people who actually want to live in New Zealand because of various reasons, mostly because we're such nice people generally, um, but also because we have a beautiful environment and we're pretty empty, all those sorts of things, um, that we can actually help them to invest in New Zealand. We're talking about people who can invest in some seriously good businesses or create them to actually help us grow our economy so that we're not entirely reliant on the agricultural sector um, to the same extent that we are at the moment. But just imagine, we don't have to one or the other, we can have both. We can actually be a country um, that's got the same sort of uh, you know GDP per capita as Ireland. I mean, they're, they're about fourth in the world after places like Liechtenstein and, and Andorra. I mean, they're, they're they're a country that has gone from being known for its immigration to now welcoming and what are they well about forty thousand Ukrainian refugees last time I checked. Um, a place that has actually been able to build its whole thinking away from being um, you know agriculture into agriculture and tech. I mean it's pretty amazing. And having been there in recent times, I can tell you their infrastructure is nothing to write home about either. I mean, some of those roads, no. some of their, <laughs> those roads are the worst in the world. You know, we complain about our roads. Blimey, you want to, you want to drive from Cork well, across like... the country out to the uh, East yeah, Coast? Yeah, I did too. <laughs> I thought that, that the same. Um, I think that must be part of the tourist experience. But I understand <laughs> too, Peter, that there are only 4 million people and they're a tiny little thing. They're about, you know, a seventh of New Zealand's physical size. And we are, yeah, they're a part of, you know, Europe. Well, so what? So is Hungary. Um, but, you know, we are, um, we're part of the Asia-Pacific region. We are part of the Five Eyes uh, intelligence sharing agreement with the US, UK, um, Canada, Australia. I mean, we, and we are right close to the west coast of the, of the states plus South America. We have lots of advantages too. I mean, for any advantage they've got, We've got it too, except I would say is that over the years we've been led, you know, with this this idea that we can just rely on tourism and agriculture. We need to be thinking and tech and turning it our country around. So our thinking is how can we become a much richer country and we can afford the lifestyle that we used to have and we now want to get. Well, there was talk in days gone by in this country of New Zealand becoming the Switzerland of the South Pacific. Uh, that seemed mm. to fall over, that particular idea. But can we revive uh, that sort of thinking so that we do become, if not a tax haven, then certainly a far more attractive place tax-wise uh, for overseas, for big overseas companies to invest in with plants, 
being built here and people being employed, with the writer, of course, that we don't know what the country's books are going to look like after the 14th of October. Yeah. There's lots of things we can do. So one of the first steps was obviously to announce the um, biotechnology changes to say we have a specific biotech regulator and it will be, this is what they're going to be doing. Um, It is actually understanding that the rest of the world's moved on what we've been sitting around for the last couple of years either in lockdown, uh, not looking forward to the next lockdown, and making excuses for complete underachievement in education and um, becoming a country where there's always an excuse why we can't do something. So, you know, where's the pioneering spirit? Where's the excitement? Where's the mojo, as Chris Luxon said the other day, basically, and then got slammed by by some of the mainstream media who were lacking a mojo themselves? The fact is, is we could do so much better. And I think that there are lots of people in New Zealand who know that. And they're prepared to do it. But what they can't, at the moment, we're sending them to Sydney and Brisbane and even Adelaide uh, because they don't see any future for themselves here. Yeah, there have been times in my life, and I think of, I guess, the 1980s, uh, from 1985, 86 on, when this country was very ambitious, very energetic. It was a good place to be. You wanted to be here instead of going to Australia. Maybe even the early 2000s were a bit like that. I I feel as if we don't have that ambition, that energy anymore. In fact, people are looking to head to the airport and uh, making their bookings just in case the, the worst thing happens on the 14th of October. Do you feel that too? Well, I think... Yeah, I do feel that, actually, Peter, and it's incredibly sad. Um, but I also know that people, like I, even just going around the supermarket and doing, you know, I like doing those sorts of things myself, and being stopped by people, you know, the broccoli part, and say, being told, you've got to win. Said, well, yes, well, we'll do our bit. What are you going to do? Oh, well, we're going to, take, you know, we're going to vote national. I said, well, right, well, do that, please. And And by the way, tell everyone else to. Don't moan about it. Get out and vote. And that's the good thing with uh, electoral cycle um, that we have is that if you don't like the government, it's the answer's in your own hands. You said during the campaign in 2020 you'd like a four-year term. By God, I'm glad we didn't have one this yep. time round. Uh, you st- <laughs> I know, I know. Are you still, I, I, I still, are you still thinking the same? Yeah. I still think that a four-year term um, gives – a much better opportunity for a government to bring about substantial change in a good way. The problem is it's also in a bad way. And, you know, three years is a very short time in government. Three years is, you know, four years would be better, but um, three years is also a very long time in opposition. So I guess it just depends. Is it is it the government that you like in power or not? And I think right at the moment people probably wouldn't vote for a four-year term because they're looking at what we've got at the moment in, in government and thinking, well, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, precisely. So, Judith, tell me about your next uh, three and a bit months. Are you going to be campaigning mostly around Papakura or as a senior, in fact, probably the senior National Party MP, you're going to be on the road a bit nationwide? I'm quite a bit on the road, but I'm, I also try to make sure I'm back in the electorate uh, a lot more during this um, particular election. We need to get every single vote, and 
I also think that, you know, like the party vote is the most important vote and that's the message that's going to be out. But I do get called along um, quite a lot to go around the country and that's just because people know who I am and they know that they'll they'll probably have an enjoyable meeting. <laughs> well, it's what, 21 years this year. You've had done yeah. seven terms. You're lining up for your eighth. Um, yeah. Is this going to be your final one or do you never say never? Oh, I never say never. And I think that... Um, as long as, you, as long as I know that I'm adding value and that I'm excited by my work, I'll continue to do it. As long as the people at Papakura continue to support me, I certainly will. I think it's um, one of those things that if, you, if anyone ever complains in this job to me, um, they, get, they get told that it's a massive privilege to do what we get to do. We get to meet people you'd never be able to get access to and go places you'd never be able to. Um, if anyone's tired by the job, they should leave. I'm certainly not tired by it. I get excited by it. Very good. Well, it's a very exciting few months coming up for you up until October 14th. So thank you so That's much it. for talking to us again today. Uh, best wishes for the immediate future and for times after that uh, that second Saturday in October. Thank you very much, Peter. Peter Williams from 1 o'clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 